Hey, this is Caleb Cole, pastor of Project Church in Sacramento. And man, I am so excited for you to hear this word. I believe God is going to encourage you, strengthen you, and challenge you through it. So get ready to receive from God today. John and Carrie Gregg are here from the Bay Area. They pastor, yeah, give it up for them. I have like one person did, so I'm like making everybody. And so uh, they're pastors in the Bay Area, uh, Bay, and it's actually called the Bay Church. And it's a just a massive church. So we're privileged to have him here that they would take time away, not just to speak to this congregation, but they're going to spend some time with some of the leadership to just deposit into our lives. And we are so forever grateful. And these guys have actually been one of our greatest financial givers when we opened up this church and they're continuing to help give financially as a church to this project and we're so very grateful and so I heard his word this morning and it's something that everyone needs to hear we're all on that road to sanctification right and so we're going to learn how to be true believers but can you give a warm project church welcome to Pastor John me and Caleb's pastor Good morning, Project Church! And then can I get a, can I borrow this, buddy? Thank you. When you're teaching in your own church, you got all this rigmarole and shenanigan all set up. So let me just set my, we just got back from the other campus. So pardon me. There's a sermon in here somewhere. There it is. Oh, whoever helped me with my Bible, my Bible was in here, so thanks for the other Bible. (laughs) Okay. Guys, it is so great to be with you this morning. Chrissy, thank you so much for the uh, gracious encouragement. I have loved you people and believed in you people from the beginning. And yes, sort of afar, but not that far, hour and a half away in the Bay. And so the reason that Carrie and I, my wife, have uh, just loved your pastors Caleb and Chrissy, and invested in you in every way that we could, is we deeply believe in you. And we think if you can capture our capital city with the love of God, we can take this whole state. And you influence 40 million Californians with the message of Christ, you can create a spiritual tidal wave from coast to coast and around the world. And so I deeply, deeply believe in you, and that's why we've invested in you in every way that we can. Pardon me, now I'm doing the next most important thing, iPhone on the timer. Although I understand we have a little bit of latitude in this service. So let me mention a couple things, uh, if I may. This family has really been a long-term influencer for Carrie and I. So one of the smartest things I ever did is I married a beautiful Sacramento woman in 1982. And honey, where are you at? right back here. So this is my bride of 38 years. She has every equal gift, competency, God call, amazing mate, amazing leader, amazing minister, amazing mother. And we have had uh, these 38 incredible years together, but a lot of them have been hard and there's been hard parts to every single year, right? So don't look up at somebody talking to you and say, man, God gave them such a better deal than me because my life kind of sucks and 
kind of everything they do, their, everything they touch turns to gold. That is a facade. That is an illusion. That's not real. We're all human beings together. We're all growing and learning together. And you know how you finally end up having influence in the long term for the kingdom? You have staying power. You just decide you have a gut check. And you say, I am not quitting. Quitting. I know in whom I have believed, I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him against that day. I'm not quitting. I'm not whining. I'm not bailing. I'm not throwing in the white towel. I am staying the course. He said go, and I'm not retreating until my job is done. In the last couple of years, I've battled with cancer. Uh, I have battled with falling off a bicycle. I was supposed to be here last year. And I never made it because I had the worst accident of my life. My shoulders are reconstructed, broke all the bones, ripped all the tendons and muscles and rotator cuffs. I was a shenanigan. I couldn't hold a mic for about six months last year, but I can now. And so, anyhow, so glad to be with you guys. In 1981, uh, I met my wife, and that's also the same year I met Caleb and Chrissy's uh, grandparents, Glenn and Marianne Cole. And... They profoundly changed our life forever. And not just Glenn and Marianne, and I can't really see the lights, but I see Randy here. Randy and Joe became an important part of our life. In fact, Randy was my wife's youth pastor once upon a time. You say, how old is he? None of your business. Some things you just don't confess to, right? Get me one of those hats. And also uh, Caleb and Chrissy's uncle, so Rick and... Uh, Kathy Cole, and then all the grandchildren, and to see what God's doing. And here's a big reason that I do it also. The people that I'm investing, I'm just going to shoot straight with you. I'm a straight shooter. I expect payback in the kingdom for what Caleb, Chrissy, and Carrie and I are doing. But we don't want your money. We don't want anything from you other than that when we're gone one day, you keep paying it forward. That's how you pay back. You pay it forward. It's 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul said to young Timothy, Timothy, the things I've invested in you, mentored you, empowered you, given to you, you keep finding reliable, trustworthy, fully devoted Christ follower, women and men. Give it to them so they can give it to others, so they can give it to others, so they can give it to others. That's how I want you guys to pay it back. So in a very real sense, I'm doing this for Pastor Cole because it really began with he. Because I did not grow up in a Christian home. I didn't even know what the name of Jesus was till I was 16, came to Christ that year. And by the age of 17 and a half, I was beginning biblical education. So I'm a first generation here. So if you say, well, I don't have a big spiritual legacy, welcome to the club. By the way, God has no grandparents, uh, he, uh, grandchildren rather. He only has kids, not grandchildren. And so just because you have parents or grandparents or even great-grandparents that have a spiritual heritage, that doesn't guarantee you anything. Each generation, each individual needs to take ownership that I myself know what it is to know God, obey God, walk with God, live in a way that deeply honors him. And so, Randy, on behalf, I just want to say for all the good your family has done for the Greggs and the Orwins, Orwins, my wife's maiden name, over the last many decades, thank you. The dream and the call live on, even though your father's in heaven, and I love your mother with all my heart to this day. Always remember the widows and the orphans. Now, whenever I'm in the first place for the first time like this, I feel like a kid for his uh, first day on the job. The guy actually got a job, teenage boy, 16 years old at a grocery store, true story, and it was his first job. You guys remember your first job? 
I had some of the crummiest jobs of all time. Uh, but actually, I was good at them. You know why? My mother told me I would be good at them. Because that was it. You go out and work, you make money, you contribute to the fam, or no worky, no eaty. And so it was real, very basic in the way there was no this failure to launch. I'm going to live in my bedroom till I 30, you do my laundry. My mom would kill you and eat you for lunch if that's the way you were thinking about living your life, okay? So my mom's in heaven now, but much of what she was, uh, I am to this day. So this kid's got a job at a grocery store. They put him in the produce section, so he's with the carrots and the lettuce and so forth. And late morning, a woman comes up to him, first day on the job, 16 years old. She says to him, young man, I'd like to buy half a head of lettuce. He goes, man, we don't sell half a heads of lettuce. She goes, I want half a head of lettuce. And she wouldn't be dissuaded from that request. So uh, finally said, you know, I'm new here. I'm going to have to go back and ask the manager. So he walked all the way back to the rear of the store to see his manager, his boss, right? Not noticing the woman was walking right behind him all the way. He gets into the back of the store, sees his boss, and he says to his boss, boss, there's some old bag out there that wants to buy half a head of lettuce. What do I tell her? Seeing the horrified look on his boss's face, uh, he turned around, the young man did, and he saw the woman for the first time, and he said, and sir, this nice lady would like to buy the other half of the head of lettuce. Would that be okay? <laughs> Very relieved, the manager said, yes, young man, that would be fine. Just do it and get out of here. So this manager was intrigued with this 16-year-old young man, finds him later in the day, and he just starts talking and a little about his bio, and he says, so boy, where are you from? And the boy said, sir, I'm from Toronto, Canada, the home of beautiful hockey players and ugly people. The manager just kind of pauses, and he says to the boy, boy, my wife is from Toronto, Canada. To which the boy responds, oh, she is? What hockey team did she play for? So I wish I had that presence of mind when I'm with a group for the first time, but typically I do not. Okay, let's talk about what it is to be a true believer. If you're the first time, if you're a veteran, if you're still kicking the tires and looking under the hood, it does not matter. There is something for everybody. But I want to ask you, fellow human being to fellow human being, could you use some encouragement today? Could I lift you, inspire you, give you some practical tools for living a victorious, overcoming life? That's what I want to try to do. Our focus, biblically, is in the book of Acts and a guy named Barnabas. Okay, look at me here, everybody. In the New Testament, it's church, don't lie. In the New Testament, how many of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Paul? Raise your hands. A lot of you, put them down. How many of you are familiar with the name of a guy named Peter? Raise your hand. Okay, again, lots of you. How many of you are very familiar with a guy named Barnabas? Let me see your hands. Okay, this is the most heavily Barnabas familiar crowd of the three this morning. But there were still only seven or eight hands. So most of you are like, got no clue who the dude, dude is. I'm going to make a bold statement. Without Barnabas, it's not an exaggeration to say that without Barnabas, church history would be radically altered. And furthermore, we might not literally have half of the New Testament we'd be almost spiritually blind because without Barnabas, certainly there would have been no Apostle Paul. You say, what are you talking about? Stay with me. You'll understand in a few moments. Take your notes, if you would, please. 
uh, each week at the Bay Church. I don't think we do here. We have a digital option online on version, but you all have a hard copy. Also, take your Bible, whether it's a device or a hard copy, whatever you use. We have English, Spanish, several other uh, translations. We've got about 45 ethnicities in the Bay Church Five generations and 45 ethnicities. It's like pastoring the United Nations. I love it. It's awesome and exciting. Okay, let's dive in. Six qualities about Barnabas' life that we can learn from that are going to encourage you greatly. Here's number one. Fill it in. He was an encourager. You say, John, how do you know? The Bible tells me so. Check it out. I'm in Acts chapter 4, verse number 36. The Bible says we're just being introduced to this guy for the first time. Joseph, you say, who's that? Pay attention. A Levite from Cyprus, what's that? I could take the time to explain to you. It only bore you and it doesn't matter. So forget that. Joseph, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. His name was Joseph, but the local church that he was part of didn't know it was Joseph. That's the name his mom gave him. To them, he's just Barney. He's Barnabas. It was a nickname. They gave him that name because encouragement was the essence of who he was. So I'm asking you the question. If people gave you a one-word nickname, what would it be? In other words, what essence do you exude? What is it about your life, your faith, your ambiance, your, your vibe that defines you in the lives of other people? No kidding. I want you, not now, although I can't stop you if you do, text 10 people and say, if you were to give me a nickname, I can take the truth even if it hurts. What one word defines me in your mind? You're a friend, you know me, good, bad, ugly. What's that word? I'd be very interested to know in my life, and I think you would too. For Joseph... Everybody simply knew him as Barnabas because he was an encourager. He was fun to be around. When you walked away from a moment of interacting with Barnabas, you were inspired, you were lifted, you were strengthened, you were encouraged, okay? Question. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and honestly you see them coming down the hall and you're looking for the closest escape hatch? Because, I mean... They're, they're a good person, but they're discouraging. They're bummer man. They're bummer woman. They're depressing. And you kind of walk away from an encounter with them and you say, you, you know, God, forgive me for what I'm about to say. You say, God, thank you. They're not part of my family because they just discourage me. Barnabas was the opposite. By the way, do you know that the Bible teaches that grouchy Christianity is not a thing? A grumpy faith is not the will of God. I've also learned this. People, even believing people, are as happy as they decide to be. I wasted the first 20 years of my ministry trying to make unhappy people happy. And it was a losing proposition. Usually, they made me unhappy. And I awake happy every day. But after time with them, I was bummer man by 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Finally, I just learned to bump and run. I was kind to him. I was gracious to him. But I learned to choose who I give my time to and make myself vulnerable to because you will be, show me your friends and I will show you your future. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. So Barnabas was an encourager. That was his nickname. Now, two practical applications to 
Barnabas' encouragement. First of all, look at your notes. Paul, in chapter 9, this is what the Bible says. So when Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Stop, time out, look up at me here for just a minute. You say, John, what is going on? Paul was a murderer. That's not a metaphor, that's, that's a fact. Paul was an orthodox, observant Jew who thought that the emergence of the Christian faith was nothing more than an aberration or a sect of the true faith, the way of Moses, Torah, and of Israel. And he was literally waylaying and killing people. The first martyr of the church, Stephen, Paul stood by, watched him stoned to death. Paul had the blood of many on his hands. But now... This dude, he wasn't known as Paul at that time. He was Saul from a city called Tarsus. When he came to Christ, nobody believed him because he was a murderer. Everybody was petrified and terrified of him. So notice what the Bible says in the rest of it. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. What does that mean? Barnabas validated Paul. Barnabas took Paul to the rest of the faith community and said, guys, he was a murderer of people like you and I. Some of you have family members that are dead today at the direction of this man that used to be Saul of Tarsus. But now he's Paul and he's a brother. And so Barnabas's validation, Barnabas vouching for Paul, of allowed Paul an access point into the faith community. God later used Paul to write fully half of the New Testament. He was the primary theologian that created the bulwark of what is today Christian theology that has defined the last 2,000 years. Without Barnabas, there was no Paul. There was no half of the New Testament. There was no Christian theology. There was no holy, believing foundation understandings that are the continuity of this great historic faith. Barnabas was everything. Application, uh, among other things, would be this. There's no pecking order or caste system in the kingdom. You can't, and in every church this happens, cute little Jesus clubs. I got here first, so that's my parking spot. I got here first, meaning my great-great-grandmother was a charter member. So what? And, and I respect heritage, and we'll get to that in a moment. It doesn't matter. There's, there's no pecking order. There's no caste system. And by the way, what do you say that we do this? We clean the fish after God catches them. Too many churches try to clean the fish before God catches them and begins the cleaning process, which is called sanctification, and we create these narrow little legalistic access points into the faith community. If you're just like us, talk like us, act like us, then we'll let you come in and be one of us. But since we got here way before you, you sit back there, you park over there, we got here first, we're the big, you know, we're the, we're the popes, we're the pontiffs in the house, we sit here, we do this, these are the perks that come our way. That happens in the church all the time. In my church at the Bay, I kill that. With love, but I kill it. I kill it. And if that's going to make you unhappy, you need to find another church where you can be the big deal. Because in our church, we're all the little deal. There's only one big deal. And his name is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is God in the flesh. And you and I are nothing more than bond slaves. And we are temporary custodians of a sacred trust. It is not ours. It is his. We are not owners. We are managers. 
I don't mean to make anybody mad or upset. Caleb said, come and talk truth to us, and I do it with love in my heart. I told you, I believe in you, and I have loved you from the beginning. So not only did Barnabas, uh, was he vital for Paul's emergence, but notice our second application for his encouragement, all the people. Look at verse 23. Barnabas arrives, sees the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all. In other words, Barnabas cast a wide arc of influence over the whole of the early Christian community. He wasn't a singer. He wasn't a speaker. He was not a noted leader. It was just his infectious essence of encouragement that saved Paul, saved the church, saved the Bible, saved Christian theology, and evidently had a huge influence over all the people. How many of you are nervous? We got six points in this message. So now we go into, what is that on Star Wars? Hyperspace? Is hyperspace a thing? Has anybody been to the new Star Wars thing at Disneyland? Come on, guys, get a life. I'm going next week. You don't need to have reservations anymore. Uh, Okay, one dude, two. Okay, we'll see you there. I'm a Disneyophile. Okay, Disneyaholic. Maybe I'm a Disneyaholic. Okay, we'll go there. Number two, he was generous. So we were at verse 36, and we know he was an encourager. Here's the verse, here's the first, um, what, physical act we know about Barnabas. Check it out, verse 37. And Barnabas sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, look at me here, everybody. Write in the word generous, and then look at me here for just a moment. In a group like this, we've got to have significant players in the real estate game in our capital city. Some of your brokers, land developers, real estate barons, whatever the deal is. You go, girl. You go, dude. Uh, cast your influence far both in the marketplace as well as in kingdom influence. You know what a commercial lot is worth. You know what a lot for residents is worth building a single-family residence, right? This was a field, a whole field. You say, what's the point? We're talking about a bunch of money here. And he gave it all to God. And he did it willingly. Now, that means two things. A, he was generous. What else does it mean? He was rich. Now, there are people that teach that God is obligated to make us materially rich uh, when we begin a relationship with him. That is a lie. Eh, gong you. It is false. It does not hold the weight of biblical truth or Christian theology. You can be a person of material means, and you can be godly or ungodly. You can be a person of minimal material means, and you can be godly or ungodly. One's not holy, and one's not sinful. It's what controls our heart. God always looks at the heart, right? So I urge you to think about that. Evidently, Barnabas was a person of influence, sold a a, a significant real estate holding, and gave all the work to God. Now, here's what's significant. Track along, not now. This is part of your homework assignment in chapter 4. We are introduced to a couple that live in infamy. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira. They also sold something, but then they had a sort of devious scheme, a conspiracy, They said they gave it all, and they didn't, and it cost them everything, right? So in the same chapter, we see one person whose heart's working right about things material, sells it, gives it to God. And by the way, Barnabas wasn't 
uh, obligated to do it. If he gave half the money to the apostles, said, hey, I sold a field, made a bunch of money, this is what I want to give to God, they'd be saying, cool. They also would have said, cool, with Ananias and Sapphira. But Ananias and Sapphira lied. And that was the problem. So we're talking about money here. And you say, John, why are we talking about money? I'm not talking about money. The Bible's talking about money. So when the Bible talks, I talk. When the Bible's silent, I shut up. So the second thing we notice about Barnabas is he's not only an encourager, but he's a person that is financially very generous. By the way, I've noticed that people that are financially generous and extravagant and giving almost always have more money than people that don't. Because when we work, when we, when we live out our lives with the understanding that God is owner and we're only managers, it is absolutely liberating. And I did not grow up in that kind of a family. I grew up in a stingy family. A hardworking, stingy family. Some of you grew up in those kind of families too. You didn't give away a thing. That was pure insanity. God had to break the back of hoarding in my life. Somebody said today Americans spend the first half of their lives wrecking their health to accumulate wealth. Hello. Then they turn around and spend the second half of their lives spending that wealth to recover their health. Is that not true? You say, John, if I just had more money, I'd be so different. No, you wouldn't. You'd just be more. Because money only makes us more of what we already are. It doesn't make us different. It makes us more of what we already are. And so we come to the understanding when Christ's lordship begins to dominate our lives that every financial decision is a spiritual decision. That he is a generous God. He wants us to be his generous, fully devoted followers. And I got good news for you beautiful people of Project Church. The Father has all the money he needs among the beautiful people of this church to do everything that he wants to do through you for this city and for this region. Number three, fill it in. Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. Check out chapter 11 now. Verse 24, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit. If you're a little bit familiar with the Bible, you may be thinking that the hero of the book of Acts is Peter, Paul, or somebody like that. No, not even Barnabas. The hero of the book of Acts is God the Holy Spirit, working through fallible, flawed women and men, like Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and many others, Ananias, Sapphira, etc. Or not Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, I'll grab the name in a minute. Lots of ordinary people just like you and I. So Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. And I want to ask you this question. Are you an individual that's yielded to the direction and the guidance and the superintendence of God's Spirit who lives within you? Because if you're here today and you have signed on the dotted line and begun your relationship with Christ, the Bible would say to you, don't you know? that you're God's temple and God's spirit lives within you? Are you allowing his spirit who lives within to rule and reign within you? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Are you immersed in the awesome, intimate relationship with God the Holy Spirit? Are you a person of fresh surrender? See, when we begin our relationship with Christ, Christ becomes resonant within. But when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, he becomes president. You say, John, what, what's my next step going forward? Here it is for all of us, and it's a challenge to remain usable, you and I. Because the temptation is for you and I to coast 
on cruise control from yesterday's spirituality. Randy, your father's gone. It doesn't matter because the faith of your father lives on. It wasn't his faith. It is the book. And one man plants another waters, God causes the growth. And we are nothing more than little errand boys and little girls in our day, in our era, in our time to do his bidding. And then we leave this life, we leave this mortal body, and we pass into eternity. What a beautiful way to live this adventure and journey of life, to be full of the Holy Spirit. You say, John, why is this so hard to remain in that yielded posture perpetually? Here's why. Have you discovered that life, that just living, is a perpetually corrosive experience, spiritually speaking? Uh, just to live, we human beings are magnets for corrosion. And it doles our tenderness to the Spirit of God. And if we're not careful, you and I, this has happened to me. Maybe you've noticed it's happened to you. We can become content to live out our lives half comatose to the very existence of the presence of God, Holy Spirit within us. And the only way that we can keep this from happening is to every morning arise and cleanse ourselves from the corrosion of daily living with the Word of God and with the Spirit of God. A daily transcendent moment uh, connecting us to the divine rhythms of the living, loving, holy God. It's the only way we avoid that corrosion. It's the only way we can move truth, truth from head to heart. It's the only way that we can avoid the fire on the altar of our lives from being extinguished. Fill it in. Number four, we've got to be full of faith. Barnabas, notice in chapter 11, verse 24, he was not only full of the Holy Spirit, Barnabas was full of faith. Can I tell you what a bunch of fun my wife and I have had with you guys uh, today just being part of Project Man? I feel young again. I feel dynamic again. Some of you are thinking, is that man ever going to act his age? Probably not. <laughs> okay? Uh, I do not fear aging. Hear me. You say, I'm young. Doesn't matter. Yeah, gravity happens and time happens. You'll be there in your, in your mortal frame. I don't fear aging. I do fear irrelevance. Irrelevance. I want to be the most relevant, in-touch individual that's one day 60, one day 70, one day 80, one day 90, until God decides to kill me and take me home. I thought I died a year ago when I did a face plant off my bike. I thought I died a year before that when I got cancer. I'm still here. I know in whom I have believed. And so we don't live with fear. We live with the sense that we're invincible and immortal until we have completed all that the master our creator has destined for us to live in complete. See, that's the way to live fearlessly, right? Everybody's saying, if I could just live two or three more years. Yeah, living more years isn't the issue. You gotta first know what you'll do with them if God grants them to you. More of Groundhog Day ain't cutting it. You know what I'm saying? I watch what people do when they get more time. I watch what people do when they retire. They just kind of sit in their lazy boy, get hardening of the arteries and get old. And their biggest concern is when does Denny's have Grand Slam Day for 65 and older? Okay, nothing wrong with that. Get a good deal for your bacon and eggs. But that's not the point. We're trying to change the world here by the love of God and the power of God. So being full of faith. So I guess a couple weeks ago at Project Church, I don't think he's here, so I'm just going to tell the story. Uh, there's an individual of faith in your church. Actually, it's your pastor, Pastor Caleb. 
You say, not really. Is this real? Oh, yes. So Pastor Caleb, a couple weeks ago here in town, ran out of gas in his car. He didn't have a gas can. So he's rummaging around in the trunk of his car, and he notices one of his kids. He's got three beautiful kids. Randy, you got three beautiful grandchildren, Kaylin, Kanan, Kai, and Charlie. Uh, in the trunk of his car was a potty chair from one of his kids, and he takes the empty potty chair, hitches a ride near his gas station, fills the potty chair with unleaded gas, hitches a ride back to his stranded automobile. Just as Pastor Caleb was filling his car's empty gas tank from the contents of the potty chair, someone in Project Church drove by, sees what Pastor Caleb was doing, slam on their brake, walk up to Pastor Caleb and said, boy, Pastor Caleb, I sure wish I had as much faith as you do. So when you see Pastor Caleb next, say, can I borrow your potty chair? <laughs> to be a person of faith, I want to give you um, two polar extremes that are killing most local churches. Do you know what leaders do? Leaders expose realities even when they hurt. Do you know what growing churches do? They expose realities. It's not exposing realities to pick on somebody or something or to diminish anybody. It's a relentless quest to become, to pursue excellence, to be all that we could be and should be for the glory of God. We never settle for mediocrity. We don't have that gear in our lives. We don't have it at the Bay Church. I can tell you for sure, you don't have that gear at Project Church. The two polar extremes we got to avoid, first of all, is camping in the past. Now, hear me on this before you say, okay, here's another young guy that's going to rag on the past. First of all, I ain't that young anymore. And secondly, I'm not ragging. Just calling the spade a spade. The past. We honor it. We learn from it. We are deeply grateful for it. But we do not live there. Do you understand the difference? You've heard the line, the thing that makes the good old days, the good old days is a bad memory. It's very true. The good old days keep getting gooder and better the older we get because people think that way because they have less life in front of them than behind them, and they are living there in the past. God says, see, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? And so we honor the past, we learn from the past, we're grateful for it, but we don't live there. God is doing a new thing. Yesterday's spirituality will not suffice for this moment. But then the other polar extreme is to fear the future. And most churches are hunkered down in paralyzing, immobilizing fear. That's why the chief emotion in the Bible that prohibits believers from becoming and prohibits communities of believers from taking their cities is fear. God is not calling this church to seize down in fear and to cultivate a cute little Jesus club. God is calling us to become a spiritual juggernaut. Empowered by the Spirit of God, our hearts filled with a relentless, unconditional love for all people. It's my deepest conviction that this hour is our hour, that God is calling us at Project Church to dream big, to attempt big, God-sized dreams, ridiculously big prayers, becoming kingdom risk-takers. You say, John, you're scaring me. Perfect. That was my goal. See, you guys are, what, six years old. The church God called me to lead was 90. 
I've never started up a church. My God call has been taking dead, dying, or plateauing churches and bringing them into a new, vibrant life. That's what I've done three times in 40 years. So what God's called us to do, actually four times, if I count my being a youth pastor. The thing that believers and communities of believers do when time transpires is they hunker down in what's comfortable and safe and predictable. We like that. Some of you haven't moved your living room furniture in 30 years. If I were to sneak into your house at 2 a.m. and move your living room furniture around and you got up the next morning, freak you out. You'd have a meltdown. It would just, because I like my sameness. And that happens in churches. You know, I got here first. My grandmother was a charter member. That is her parking spot. So I need you to move. Uh, first, church Carrie and I took, senior pastors. I'm 29. There's a room with 300 ugly maple back chairs in there. Old Norwegian church. I love these people. And we're, my wife and I just walked in. We're, we're, we're presenting our ministry for election. We sit down. There's 300 seats. We take two, so there's, do the math, 298 empty seats. A lady stands a foot and a half from me in the aisle. I look up and I, I'm sitting. I said, good morning, ma'am. She goes, you're in my seat. I said, these exact seats? She said, yes. I said, okay, we'll move because, yeah, there's 298 other seats here that we'll be happy to sit in. Okay, now I'm sure she was a good lady, but she wasn't in our church very long. I didn't send her packing. But when you upset selfish, controlling people that feel that they got squatters rights, you know what they're going to do? They're going to go find some other cute little Jesus club that they can control and that they will demand becomes all about them. To be a Christ follower at its essence is to become an individual of unselfishness. Don't talk to me about what great things God is revealing to you. Show me how you treat your mate. Show me how you're doing your job nine to five. You stealing stuff from the office? Show me your tax return. Are you really claiming all your deductions accurately and really paying all your taxes? Do you understand these are the things that the marketplace and secular community looks at? They don't trust us. They don't believe in us because we don't, believe, we don't live what we say we believe. Fill this one in, would you please? He was a lover of people. Number five, Barnabas was a lover of people. Now, I know you're hearing me teach for the first time, and you're saying, John, you're kind of going at hyperspeed. Literally, gang, you'd be so proud of me if you knew all that I'm not saying. I'm condensing two to three hours of teaching. I'm trying to do 37 minutes. I'm not going to get it all. We'll get through point five. Point six is homework. I'll give you the answer. It's homework. I'm not interested whether or not you like homework or not. I'm asking you humbly, please do your homework. It may be the most important insight of all from the life of Barnabas. It also saved the church. Barnabas, in number five, was a lover of people. Notice verse 24, chapter 11. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. We talked about that. Notice the result of being a good woman, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, an encourager, financially generous. The result will be, check it out, verse 24, Acts 11, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Is that happening in your life? Are you leaving a spiritual wake in your life of men and women whose lives that you have touched forever? See, it is the normal thing for every believer to be building relationships with people far from God. I'm going to say something to you that is kind of shocking to so many people, and it shouldn't be. 
because it is so central to who Jesus Christ was. Here's what I'm going to say. Please don't only have Christian friends. Please don't only go to Christian clubs and Christian groups and Christian huddles. I'll have people that come to me in the bay and say, oh, pastor, thank God, I finally got out of that hellhole of Kaiser. You know what Kaiser is? Yeah, you have it here. That hellhole of Kaiser, because it's just a bunch of sinners, about 150,000 of them. And now I'm in this great little company. There's only four of us, and we're all Christians. And we just sit around and kumbaya all day long, and it's so awesome. I don't say this because I love these people, but I'm thinking, you sold your soul. Now, God may have wanted you to leave that to go to this, so that's a thing I can't know about a person's life. But if your reason is, all these sinners are so horrible, they're just tearing me. Get a life and get a faith and get real and get down with Jesus. Jesus was a friend of sinners. It is the norm that most evangelicals in the United States today, we're afraid of sinners. We don't know what to do with them. Okay, so let's talk real here for a minute. You can't be in the Bay Area. And I know what you're thinking. You guys are all freaks over there. We're not that much more freaks than you all are. Okay, you're pretty freaky here too. (laughs) We've got 8 million people. We've done systemically, we've done all the hard demographics. Because I want to know. I cannot settle for not knowing. We got 8 million people. Being incredibly generous, 2 million of them have some orientation to the Christian faith. So they're Catholics, they're Protestants. Many of you would not even recognize them as Christian, but I'm being extremely generous. 2 million of the 8 million, so 25%. You know who we focus fully half of all of our energies as a local church on? The 75%. And most churches are unwilling to do that because they want God and church their way. But you know what it does to people on the outside looking in? It scares them. It freaks them out. They don't understand. And so we are constantly thinking about how to love the six million people of the Bay that have no orientation to things Christian, to Bible, to the God of the Bible. They're Wiccans. They're they're Satanists. They're mediums. They're rabid anti-God atheists or agnostics. At the same time, by the way, they're creating ideas that run the planet. I love the madhouse that I live and pastor in because I've lived in communities that are all Christians. You do understand that 90% of all church growth in America today is not the lost being found. It's disgruntled sheep going from one sheep pen to the next. The kingdom is not being advanced that way. We're just babysitting disgruntled believers for whom God would say, my child, I love you. It is time to grow up and get real with me. Okay, so these are the demographics. We have a leadership thing this afternoon. We're going to talk a whole lot about this kind of stuff this afternoon. To be a lover of people and a soul winner, you and I don't need to go outside our country. We need to go outside ourselves. I cannot emphasize that strongly enough because, again, the pull of being a human being is towards selfishness. Ask yourself the question regularly, do I love people? Really, till I'm uncomfortable, it's inconvenience and it hurts. Write this down, everybody, would you please? This understanding really changed my life about 30 to 40 years ago. It's one thing to believe in Jesus. It's another thing entirely 
to believe like Jesus. I want you to really wrestle with that. It's implications in your life, in your core convictions, in the deep essence of who you are in the hallways and corridors of your soul and spirit. Believing in Jesus is important. It's the introductory point, the introductory moment, right, to our relationship with him. But you can't stay there. It's infancy point. It's spiritual milk. If we're going to become, we've got to learn to believe like Jesus. The stuff we're seeing in Barnabas' life this weekend is, in fact, believing like Jesus. And loving people is going to make us uncomfortable because we love the lost in direct proportion to how far they are from us. Do you know how many good-hearted believers I know that give regularly significant sums of money to missions? Because they care about the lost people in Portugal and Brazil and in outer Mongolia and in Uzbekistan. But they don't even know the names of their next-door neighbor on their cul-de-sac, on their hallway of their apartment building, two cubbies down at their work. And they don't know because they don't care. They don't know because they're scared of them. They don't know because they were told somehow, mistaught, that if they were to build relationships with people like this, we would somehow get spiritual cooties. Ooh, they would pollute us. They'd wreck us. Is our faith really that shallow, that, that sort of vulnerable, that we can't interact with beautiful people far from God? I beg you again, build relationships with the beautiful people of our capital city. Know the mayor. I don't like his politics either. He came from the Bay, but I love him because God loves him. It's not my job to save him. It's not my job to change him. It's my job to love him. And with our senators and with our congressmen and women and with our community leaders, business leaders, marketplace leaders, economic leaders, academic and educational leaders, do we know them? Are we building friendships? Do we know their name? Do they know our name? Or are we hiding in what we call our, our, our safe place, our church? Fact people who do not become soul winners and lovers of people within the first five years of beginning their relationship with Jesus Christ will not likely become effective soul winners for the rest of their lives. Translation. The habits of our spiritual journey are embedded deeply and early in our believerhood. I can't emphasize that enough. The kind of habits that you and I develop in the first two, three, five years of our faith will probably dig ruts in our lives for the rest of our days. And I'm saying God will get you out of your ruts, but we got to have a new awareness, a new understanding, and a new willingness to become all that God's destined us to be. You say, John, what's at stake? Human beings are at stake. Human beings created in the image of God for whom Christ died. Your friends, my friends, your neighbors, my neighbors, your family, my family. People that are poking around the garbage heaps of life looking for meaning. And they are going from bar to bar, toy to toy, fun fix to fun fix, lover to lover, fad to fad. They are looking for meaning, purpose, reason, significance, and they're coming up with a big fat zero. It's our task to love them and serve them and act toward them in ways that are representative of Jesus. Last point, here's your homework. Fill in number six, grace and truth. I would love to have 45 minutes to teach this, not going to do it. Read the Acts 15 passage on your own, and I want you to see 
the beautiful grace example of Barnabas, the harsh, judgmental, unwilling to forgive and give a second chance example, believe it or not, of the Apostle Paul toward a young man named John Mark. You know what your pastor's preaching about these days? Caleb and Chrissy are teaching you marked by Jesus. The guy that wrote that book, Inspired by God, actually Peter gave him the substance because Mark wasn't around. That's the guy that they were arguing over. And Barnabas and Paul had such a strong division over John Mark that they unfriended each other on Facebook. They no longer not only associated, they never did ministry again together. I bet you didn't know that about the New Testament. It's one of the decisive points. It's there for you to do Bible study on your own. Ask your pastors, Chrissy, Caleb, about it. They'll fill you in on the rest. And uh, let's bow our head in prayer, would you please? We hope this word encouraged you today. If you haven't heard, we recently purchased a building in Old Sacramento. This is going to be the permanent home of Project Church. We are here to stay in Sacramento. But I wanted to ask you if you would consider giving, uh, donating to help make this vision come to fruition. You can go to www.projectchurch.com backslash believe to see more about the building and to donate. God bless you and let's see what God can do through us.